0: November 30th, 2020. This is Rook. It was in November of last year that massive protests spread across Iran in what would become the loudest and ultimately most bloody street actions since the Islamic Revolution of 1979. Iranians from all walks of life, fed up with an oppressive environment and deep economic crisis, began rising up to challenge the regime in ways that were more vocal, more pointed than before. Then security forces responded with unprecedented brutality, killing some 1,500 citizens involved in the protests. One year later, we assess the context, the details, and the lessons of Bloody November. Plus, Mona from Melbourne joins us with the Persian Proverb of the Week. I'm Gian Meshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode number 66 of Rook. Omidvar Hope you are doing all right, wherever you are around the world listening to us. We are on this ongoing mission to build a new audio-visual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We are coming to you on Spotify, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Instagram, YouTube, and Telegram. So in a few minutes, we're going to get to Nazanin Ansari, the managing editor at Kehan London and Kehan Life, to talk about Bloody November 2019. That is the Aban protests, as they were known in uh, in Iran or amongst Iranians, and indeed the Aubon massacre last year, this time in Iran. And we want to... One year removed, get some perspective and context around what these widespread protests meant, what the significance of the brutal crackdown by the regime was, and where this all might be going. We have Nazanim, uh, we have Roshanak Astaraki joining us from Cyprus, and Stuart Williams of uh, Agence France Presse from Paris joining us. That's coming up in just a few moments. Hi, Groovy Shaya. Hello, uh, Jean-Jean. I hope you're okay. Salam. Salam, Askadam. Salam, <laughs> uh, Captain Reza, hello. hello, sir. The fabulous Kion.
1: hello, Gianjon. Nice to
0: see you in your kula cap. Um, <laughs> you know, we're we're going to talk about the one-year anniversary of the bloody protests last year in Iran, and there there is so much conflict and difficulty in the world right now, you guys. Uh, obviously ongoing for Iranians. We discussed this a lot. And then in the last few days, you know, there was the murder of a prominent nuclear scientist in Iran a few days ago, which of course has raised concerns about an escalation of tensions with Iran and potentially the US and Israel and then within Iran. Uh, But uh, I've, you know, I've concluded that we cannot only drown ourselves in sorrows or we would never be able to pick ourselves up. So in In the spirit of balance, let me before we get into the uh, one year anniversary of the aban uh, massacre and the protests and, and and that discussion, let me also mention that it was international Qorma Sabzi day this <laughs> this weekend. Uh, for some reason, Kion, <laughs> by the way, on the basis of it being Qorma Sabzi Day weekend, um, there's like a bevy of, there's pots and pans full of Korma Sabzi, because uh, Ponce the Artist and Thoughtful Nagin both brought Korma Sabzi in. I don't know why, but the last <laughs> Saturday in November has been declared... International Gourmet Sabzi Day.
1: Is it like harvest season for Gourmet Sabzi <laughs> That's, right, that's right. What's going on that they... You
0: <laughs> go and pick Gourmet Sabzi <laughs> and, uh, it, and it comes into season at the Sh- end of November.
1: Shaya, do you know why? Why is it International Gourmet Sabzi Day? No, I,
2: I could guess that because November is the end of autumn and it is the beginning of winter. So... We, ha- we want to cheer ourselves up to, you know, to let it go, the winter mm. and the gloomy days. It's
1: like a comfort food, maybe to get your vitamins up before the winter season comes. Uh, that's my best guess.
0: I think we should just uh, start declaring just days for things. <laughs> you know, Wednesday will be Fesen June Day. The third week of December is Ebby Week.
1: Obgush Day. You know, like, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to Auguste that. Obgush month. Day is
0: a
2: great idea. Oh, that should yeah. be a Friday Oof. night.
1: There's something just, oh, something so powerful about the abgush. Oh, it's okay. like an essence. To, oh.
0: Durk. Oh, durk. Durk week. week. Really Not a fan. <laughs> really? No. <That laughs> of any so kind heavy. of duk?
1: Well, durk, like, it's because so can heavy. Because you get the it's salted like, or
0: non-salted. You get the fizzy.
1: But, like, who? I don't know. It's too heavy to eat with Persian food. It's, like, too hmm. much. It's so thick and ugh.
0: Durk, for those of you who don't uh, speak Persian, is a delicious yogurt liquid
1: Carbonated, isn't
0: it? It's it's not always carbonated. Mm, that's true. There's yeah. dure, mm. s- what soft? Uh, dure because you mean <laughs> d- d- without <laughs> gas. D- Doesn't sound good.
1: Gasless duel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No gas duels. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, I mean, uh, I I don't know how much. I I was at friends' friends' house on Friday night, and I already had korma sabzi. I don't know. I don't know what what is the statutory limit on how like how much korma sabzi is too much korma sabzi?
1: Like weekly, I think is too much. (laughs)
0: It's too much to eat it once a week, even.
1: I think that's too much. How yeah.
0: many times a, a, a month can I have korma Sabzi? Well,
1: once a month is is just enough. You you know how it smells. <laughs> that's yes. that stays with you forever. Okay.
0: Oh, so once a month, you limit yourself to korma Sabzi once a month. Uh, Captain Reza, how many times a month I'd would say you?
1: Once a month. I'd say once a month, really? mostly really? so for the stench too. Like, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've covered that in the. I, I
0: think I I close. first of all when I make korma Sabzi... I make a lot of it. So I'm eating it for, you know, every few days I have some more and I'll freeze some Mm -hmm. and I'll eat it. So I, this one month, once a month rule would when, be, I'd, I'd be crushed.
1: When I say once a month, I mean, that's like that you get one week of Hormuzadzi. <laughs> that's what I you mean. See, that's all part <laughs> of the same. Yeah. Deal. Right.
0: Just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just one. One entire dish. week of Hormuzadzi <laughs> a month is what you meant. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, um, we also have, before the show uh, closes, it's a Monday. So Mona from Melbourne, coming up with the, the proverb of the week. The Persian priestess of proverbs from Australia will be joining us. Us, uh, uh, in about, uh, I don't know, I guess in 45 minutes, an hour after we uh, speak about the Auburn protests, uh, 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 the, she will either have a saying or an idiom or a word or a proverb. Now I call her the priestess of Proverbs and last week it was an idiom. In any so, case,
1: I won't get any of them. I never do. <laughs> it
0: doesn't, <laughs> it's just academic to you. Whether it's a proverb or an idiom, you're not gonna get it anyway. So Mona presents us with Persian Proverbs that Keon and I have to guess we don't we usually don't come even close to it and then Reza and and and, and Shaya get Cheshire cat gr- uh, grins <laughs> on their faces
1: I got the one time the sheer to share. that was me by the way yeah, yeah. you got sheer to sheer? yeah I got that oh. one not well, even Shaya well you got tukhaar, but then that was a p- more polite version ah, but yeah yes. you get the credit yeah, yeah. yeah. there we go actually
2: yeah. I love the previous one Shotur Didi Nadidi I'm, I'm really excited for today the story of Shotur yeah, Didi yeah,
0: Nadidi was great uh, you can hear that, so that on our uh, um, our show from last week Number 64. So we'll get to Mona from Melbourne. Thank you, Captain Reza. Thank you, Groovy Shia. Thank you, the fabulous Kion. Let's get to our feature theme for the day and our first guest. Nazanin Ansari is an Iranian born journalist and the managing editor of Kahan London and Kahan Life. She was the London producer and chief correspondent for VOA Persian and moderated a bi weekly roundtable discussion on Manoto Television called In Hafteh this week. She is a trustee of the Persian. Educational Foundation and has served as the president and vice president of the Foreign Press Association in London. She also co edited the Foreign Policy Center's Iran Human Rights Review on the emergence of access to information as a pivotal element in promoting and protecting human rights. She is a regular panelist on BBC News Dateline London program and provides news analysis about Iran on BBC Radio 4, CNN International, Sky News, and Al Jazeera. As I mentioned, she's the editor at K in London. But right now, Nazanin Ansari joins us from Paris, France today. Hello.
3: Hello, Gian, and thank you so much for your invitation.
0: Thank you so much for doing this, Nazanin. You know, as I mentioned in the introduction of this program, I want to do this in three stages. We'll be joined by Roshanak Astaraki in a little while to talk about the impact of the killings on the families of the victims in Iran, some of the details of what happened and the campaigns for change and justice that have emerged. And Stuart Williams will be joining us later with his take on what he thinks the next steps are and what the legacy of Aban 2019 will be. But we wanted to first set the stage for what we're talking about. And come to you for general context. Nazan, you remind anyone who was not following the story and from your perspective, what happened last year in the month of Aban in Iran, essentially around this time, one year ago? Uh,
3: Yes, I mean, uh, the importance of of, Aban 2019 is November 2019 is that uh, the demonstrations and the protests. you know, spread to 100 cities uh, in about 48 hours. And what we saw was that the regime uh, finally uh, reacted in a very vicious way, killing uh, over 1,500 protesters. And what we know now are the names, uh, the names are coming out and they're very young, their uh, videos, their photos. But one thing to keep in mind is that. These protests had been brewing for a very long time in Iran. In the early 1990s, we witnessed urban riots. Between 1999 and 2003, we had student protests. Then we had the Green Movement, the Green Revolution, that many of your uh, listeners might remember yes. uh, that were in a response to the 2009 elections. And then since... 2016 onwards, um, and this is after the signing of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear deal as we came to know it, uh, the economic pressures started building up. And then we had the sanctions from 2010 onwards. And we had the rising inequality between those, the have and the have-nots. So we had more protests, frequent protests by teachers, nurses, bus drivers, industrial and agricultural workers, pensioners, uh, who many of them cited broken promises uh, and the unjust working conditions uh, as a cause for their protests. Uh, for example, in 2015, we had 400 labor protests in Iran, uh, and then in 2017, they spiked to over 900. So, um, the December it started in December 2017, the first mass protests against the regimes, and then um, on, unlike the Green Movement, the 2017 protests were called for political liberalization, and then then suddenly we had uh you know between 2017 and 2019 we had a whole series of protests by girls my stealthy freedom that protested against iran's compulsory public hijab law for women and girls and then we also had the arrest of um environmentalists so it was like a uh, it was brewing underneath and then in november 2019 the protests were spread in over 100 towns and cities and left over like 1500 civilians okay
0: so this is great i mean you've given a great little history of the run-up to this and why this wasn't an anomalous situation but the orthodox narrative around these protests i mean if you you know sort of news reports etc and the subsequent suppression of them by the regime the analysis was that this was a reaction to gas. Price hikes—is uh, that reductive? I mean, is it is it as simple as that, or um, given this broader historical context you've given us, was this something that was brewing, and the gas price hikes were the last straw?
3: Yes, the gas price hikes were the last straw, and they they basically provided the context for the protest. It it was economic at the beginning, but then it became radicalized and became more. Political, so we could see it in uh, in the slogans uh, of the protesters that they had gone as far as calling for a revolution, chanting "No reform, no referendum, just strikes and revolution," or "This is your last month; it is time to go." This was directed to Mr. Khamenei, and the uh, the slogan started, at, uh, you know, uh, targeting. Uh, Mr. Khamenei, the supreme leader of the Islamic uh, Republic. And so they were calling for his death. They were calling, they were saying, for example, the supreme leader lives like a god. We, the people, live like beggars so uh, whereas in 2009 and others there were more economic protests then we saw from 2017 onwards they're directed at the supreme leader they're directed at the foreign policy of the islamic republic saying for example the protest was no uh, no gaza my life only for uh, iran so uh, we have seen, and this has been going, and and also the age of the protesters is very important. They became much younger, um, uh, and they also they became more secular. demands that they no longer wanted to be led by clerics. Uh, So uh, you can see the progression of the feelings of the Iranian protesters in their slogans.
0: Let me ask you a few quick questions because you said a lot there. Uh, um, First of all, I mean, the protests were you know, entirely understandable, but they seemed from, um, from an outsider's perspective to, to lack any central leadership or specific collective objectives. Um, if that's the case, how did they spread so quickly over 100 cities? In other words, um, is this just via social media? How, how did it grow so quickly um, and so widespread?
3: Well, certainly uh, we didn't see a a kind of a central command, but what we did see and witness was the same kind of slogans going around. For example, like, not Gaza, not Lebanon, I give my life for Iran was one of the main uh, slogans or the chance death to the dictator or death to the Islamic Republic. So what we saw is that The protesters knew what they did, no longer wanted. You know, in 2009, I go back to 2009, we heard a lot of Allahu Akbar. But certainly from 2017 onwards, they were no longer um, calling for either Allahu Akbar or religious slogans. They had become secular. Um, And so in a sense, you could see their unity in what they did not want. And what uh, we are seeing now as since 2019 onwards is a sense of what they really do want. And what they do want is basically the life of what Iranians outside of Iran, the same kind of opportunities they have outside of Iran. They are wanting that. They look around themselves. They look at the history of Iran. There's a lot of going back to history and seeing where Iran was before, whether it was economic conditions or even going as far back as 2,500 years ago with Cyrus the Great, mm-hmm. uh, that who basically is famous his, uh, for freeing uh, the slaves of Babylonia especially the Jews, for human rights. So these are what they do not want and what they hope for their aspirations are what unites them.
0: What does it tell you that the age of the protesters by 2019 is significantly younger than it was, say, in the Green Movement or in other uh, uh, movements? Um, What what do we conclude from that?
3: A sense of hopelessness. That when they look to the future they don't see they have anything to lose by going out on the streets now what is whether it is uh what we saw in 2019 was the spread and the depth of this uh uh, frustration and also a sense of unity Uh, what they are hoping for is for an alternative to be able to unite them to provide an alternative on how to reach that future. Now, where is that alternative? It is certainly from what we hear from the different political groupings and social groupings and the civil society, that the alternative is within themselves. That is, that it is us that can bring about change and no one else, that the change has to come from within Iran and they're the ones that need to be the agents for that change.
0: Although there is still no unified opposition group, which which is a part of the issue. Although, I, let, let me get to that. First yes. of all, uh, the reason we're talking about this, uh, as you know, is that this isn't just another protest in another part of the world or even in Iran. This was th- this was marked by a significant and devastating amount of bloodshed. Um, said to be yeah. the deadliest political unrest in, in Iran since the revolution 40 years earlier. And, and we have heard varying accounts of the lives lost. I mean, some reports said 180 and then 400, and then you mentioned 1,500. Some have said more than that. Have we learned anything more one year uh, uh, removed about just how many citizens were killed in these uprisings?
3: Unfortunately, when you deal with uh, Iran at the moment and the Islamic Republic, the statistics and the numbers you get uh, is not very accurate, whether it is about the number of the dead, whether it is about corona, whether it is the uh, economic statistics, uh, the numbers are not there. So that's why you, you mentioned that there's all this discrepancy between various numbers. The 1500 number was the one that was uh, mentioned by Reuters, and certainly what we do see is are the photos and the videos of these protesters, like Navi Dafkari or others who are going into the protest and videoing themselves, and these are the ones who were also later killed. Uh, and unfortunately, that's why access to information, it's so critical to know exactly what is going on. We have anecdotal uh, evidence. Uh, we do hear reports here and there. But because there is is no, I mean, Amnesty International has not been allowed to visit Iran for a long time or the UN uh, ra- special rapporteurs. On Iran, that has been one of their main grievances: that they do not have access to the country itself. So, what we get, and what is just videos from people coming, uh, you know, from inside Iran.
0: Well, you've written about that. How, how do yes. we get access?
3: The access is through internet. That's why one of the most important elements of the November 2019 protest was that, for over ten days, they shut down the internet. Yes. Um, there was uh, a report by Radio Fardo journalists saying that in the days prior to the, the protests, the amount of engagement that uh, they had was uh, over 50 million with as far as Twitter, social media, all that, but uh, with Radio Fargo journalists. And that's a liberty radio that is uh, based in Prague. and uh, But then once the internet was shut down, all this engagement came down to less than 4 million. So access to information is the most important uh, way for not only citizens, to know information about their living standards, about their life, but how they can bring about change. And that's why for the Islamic Republic, the best its best weapon has always been to shut down the internet yes. so that it can uh, cut down uh, the access between inside Iran and the outside world. Uh, outside world.
0: Which is of course against international law but uh, you know we saw them do it last year and, and a lot of us were, were protesting it but it it was effective in a way because it, it it neutered it retarded the the ability for information to come out and for people to know just exactly what was happening and what was happening Nazanin as you know is that this regime even though it's known for its brutality um, there were people just being shot in the streets um, and yes. this this was still Shocking. Uh, even though um, you know we've heard these horrendous stories for decades now uh, coming out of the Islamic Republic, and, and and the the detentions and the and the suppression of dissent and all of that. Yeah. To have mass shootings in the street, this use of lethal force against people throughout the country was was unprecedented, even by the Islamic R- Republic's standards of violence. Why did the regime see these protests as so threatening that they would go to this extent? <laughs> To suppress them
3: because first of all they they were by people you know i mean the islamic republic or uh, came to power because it wanted to bring um, it promised the people on the street those uh, the underdogs the underprivileged heaven and after 40 years what they have promised they had promised had not been delivered and these were like uh, what we, people talk about, some experts talk about the revolution of the sans-culottes, just like the French Revolution. They have nothing. Roshanik can explain to you better later on the amount of poverty that is in Iran, not for those in the cities, not in Tehran, but the disparity of wealth between the urban dwellers And those on the sides of the urban cities, that is really heart-wrenching when you feel and you hear that people, whether it's on Instagram or Twitter, talking about, okay, where am I going to get my next food or the price of eggs going or the price of bread increasingly day by day. At one point, inflation was increasing by double digit every month. And when you look at, when you see factories uh, closing down and factory workers not being able to take food for their families. I mean, we we saw a lot of labor movement. But when the
0: security forces are killing people, you, yes. they, you've got to assume they feel threatened, Other, otherwise they wouldn't do that, would they? I mean, we sort of get tired of saying this from outside of Iran looking in, but yes. uh, that this is the time, this is when their change is gonna come, but but do you think that even the regime itself thought that, oh boy, this could be the end of our days if, this, if these protests get too widespread and too big?
3: Yes, that's why they, as you said, they used violence, they felt that they, there was even an incident that there was in uh, one of the cities that the security forces had to retreat. They could not stand the number of protesters and uh, that were actually becoming more violent. So uh, they had no choice but to use live ammunition. And mind you, it didn't end with the killings of the 1,500 uh, protesters, That the numbers that we we know it has continued, and we still hear families. For example, the family of Navid Askari. Navid Askari was a champion wrestler, yes. uh, who they arrested. But they arrested his two brothers as well. They're still in prison, and they went in two thousand and nine. They arrested fifteen hundred people, and. It died down the protest died down there was nothing else and even the protesters they would go out on the streets in the day and at night they would go home but in 2019 they stayed outside they stayed out and they continued during the night and so yes that's why they used live ammunition and that's why the arrests still continue
0: It's an election year in Iran, for what it's worth. Uh, There's some analysts who say that these protests... And the nature of them, both in terms of the, the severity or the, the numbers of people out in the streets, and then the, the nature of the way that they were suppressed, delivered a severe blow to President Hassan Rouhani, a relative moderate in Iran's political spectrum, uh, and and provided a guarantee that the hardliners would win the upcoming parliamentary elections and the, the presidency uh, uh, within a year now. Um, do, do you think that's true? I mean, do you think that um, these protests and the suppression of them have a um a political Im- impact within who is going to be governing Iran
3: Let's be clear about one thing um the point is Mr Rouhani whoever runs in the elections in Iran at this stage they have to be part of the system it is not a system of free elections. It is. They would, it's more like a selection. Mr. Rouhani has been part of the Islamic Republic security apparatus since the start. Um, Mr. Khatami as well. They're part of the system. So what we see right now is that it's Islam- not the state itself has lost its. Uh, legitimacy. Now, I mentioned the uh, my stealthy freedom, the uh, the movement by the girls uh, against hijab laws. Yes. If you look at the constitution of the Islamic Republic, the constitution of the Islamic Republic is a theocratic constitution where women, their life and the rights they have as a citizen is worth half of that of a man, and throughout these. Uh, for the longest time, even within the reform movement within the Islamic Republic, they've tried to bring about change. And that is another thing. People are tired and they have given up on reform, that this system is no longer reformable. It cannot reform itself. Yes, it's like you have a nice car that the engine is not working. You keep changing the paint of the uh, the car or the mm-hmm. wheels. But the engine is no longer working. And what we see in the Islamic Republic today is a lot of self-made crisis, that because there is not proper governance, where there's a lack of accountability, where 80% of the economy is owned by foundations that do not pay any taxes, that is what the protesters and that is what the everyday man on the street is paying attention to so the next elections is very important to see who will be coming in so there's a lot of talk that the, the revolutionary guards it is going to be militarized but let's not forget iran has been in the control of the revolutionary guards and people in the foundation the religious foundation since the start So now it's becoming more transparent and the people are saying we we do not want it. Where do they go from here? That that remains to be seen. Well,
0: that's actually a good segue to my final question for you because um, uh, you've touched on a lot there and we're going to actually get get into a little bit of of the U.S.'s position and U.S. sanctions and whether a change in government in 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 America will make a difference uh, with uh, Stuart Williams coming up. But uh, let me ask you before I let you go. I mean, uh, with everything you've just said, uh, the economy has only gotten worse since last year in iran i mean tremendously so if there were a precipitant for the uprising last year being the economy it's only increased in recent months growing economic disparity a deadly pandemic uh, seeming chaos at times where do you believe this is in again in the context of what happened a year ago Um, in the streets of of Iran and fast forwarding to a year later where um, things are even worse on the ground for Iranians. Where do you believe this is all going, Nazani?
3: The prognosis for the Islamic Republic doesn't look good in the sense that, yes, they do need cash. They do need cash to be able to give out short-term relief to those who are most in need. But at the end of the day, The macro doesn't look good and the micro doesn't look good in the sense that Iran, if Iran wants to be able to join and do business either with Europe or with China, with Russia, it needs to be able to have a proper, accountable, transparent financial system. To do that, uh, we've got the Palermo Convention of the UN, and uh, which is the anti-money laundering, anti-terrorism financial system that it has to join, uh, which is called FATF. Um, the Financial Action Task Force has been wanting Iran to sign off and join it for over uh, many years. It has uh, extended the deadline seven times for Iran. At each juncture, at each turn, even though the government has wanted to join it, when it comes to the big, the forces, the real forces, the men in the dark shadows that are governing Iran, they do not want it. They do not have put a stop to it. So even if, for example, Iran at this moment wants to join China, get its loans from China or do business with Chinese banks, Instead of American banks, it cannot because it is not part of the Financial Action Task Force. So, unless it joins certain international covenants and abide by them, it will not be able to do any business. Will a new IRGC president, a military president, be able to do that? That we may, I, I highly doubt it because the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary, corps have been uh, impeding the joining of FATF for the longest time.
0: Nazanin Ansari, I thank you so much for this today. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
3: Thank you very much, John, for having me, and thank you very much for your very in-depth questions.
0: Hope to talk to you again soon. Merci. Enjoy yourself in France if you can do so during a pandemic.
3: Exactly. I hope so. (laughs) Maybe next year.
0: Yes, exactly. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Nazanin Ansari is an Iranian-born journalist and the managing editor of Kahon London and Kahon Life. She joined us from Paris, France today. This is a rook look at bloody November one year later in Iran, and for a more specific look at who was killed, how the families and friends have reacted, and the dark legacy of Aban, let's turn to Roshanak Astaraki. Roshanak is a freelance journalist focusing on Iran, and we have agreed that I will ask questions in English, she will answer in Farsi, so if you do not speak Persian and you are listening on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud, you may want to switch to YouTube, Telegram, or Instagram, where this conversation will be subtitled. Roshanak has contributed to several outlets, including Hambastigi newspaper, Radio Kuche, Rohidigar, Digar, Jaras, Sevom, and Paya Economics magazine, as well as Monorail magazine. She has worked with Kayhan London since 2014, where she focuses on Iran's economy and current affairs. She left Iran in 2008 due to the pressures of Iranian intelligence and security forces. She has reported extensively on the Aban protests and their impact on the victims and families of those killed. Roshanak Astadaki joins me from Cyprus right now. Hello. Merci, Roshanak John. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I want to start with something a little more specific when it comes to Alban and what happened last year. The, the worst violence documented uh, during the uprising was apparently in the city of Mashhad and its suburbs. Witnesses and medical personnel said the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, members surrounded, shot, and killed up to 100 demonstrators, mostly unarmed young men, in a marsh where they had sought refuge. What happened in Mashhad?
4: اتفاقی که در ماه شهر افتاده بود من با چند نفر از شهروندان ماه شهری که همون پارسال صحبت کردم این بود که اعتراضات مثل اعتراضاتی که در تمام شهرهای ایران شکل شهر گرفته بود در ماه شهر هم شهر گرفته بود مردم به خیابان آمده بودن اعتراض میکردن اعتراضات با چند باید با داشتن خیابونها در دست مردم خیابون های اصل ماشر ادامه پیدا کرده بود نیروهای های پلیس و نیروهای های امنیتی، حضور داشتن از مردم عکاسی و فیلم برداری میکردن اما به مردم شلیک نکرده بودند تا اینکه واننت هایی رو مردم میبین که با چند نفر با اسلحه توی واننت هستن و میان به سمت جمعیت اونجا پلیس شلیک میکنه و مردم این وسط گیر میکنن و به سرعت تی میکنن در کوچ های اطراف پراکنده بشن این درگیری کشیده میشه به حاشیه شهر ماهشر اونجا که ما ازش به عنواننیزار شنیدیم و اون درگیری کشیده به اون منطقه نیروهای مسلح که جمهوری اسلامی مدعی هست این نیروها نیروهای تجزیه طلب عرب بودند با اسلحه درگیر میشن و این درگیری نظامی شکل میگیره و متاسفانه توی این درگیری بین نیروهایی که تجدید طلب هستند در اون منطقه و نیروهای سپاه پاسداران متاسفانه تعداد زیادی از هاالی بومی اون منطقه قربانی میشن از جمله تعدادی نوجوان که به هر حال توی اون شرایط که اینها معترض بودن و بد این اتفاق افتاده خیلی ها از نوجبونار نمی و جوونار نتونستن خانواده تو خونه نگهدارن اون رفته بودن بعضی ازطر هیجان و کنجکاوی بعضی واقعا برای اعتراض و متاسفانه اونها هم در این میان هم قربانی دوانی دادن کشته دادن و هم مجروح دادن
0: you talked about the profile there just a moment ago. You touched on the profile of some of these protesters in Mashar. Uh In general, in all the cities that this was happening in Aubon last year, what can you tell us about who the protests were? Nazanin was just talking about their relative youth. Uh, they, were, they were particularly young compared to previous protests that we've seen in the last 40 years. What can you tell us about the people who were on the streets and the people, in many cases, who ended up getting shot?
4: ببینید مردمی که در آبان 98 به خیابون اومدن مردم عادی بودن که در ایران زندگی روزمره دارن مردمی هستن که در بینشون اقشار فرو دست هست کارگر بود، افراد حاشیه نشین بود بینشون افراد تحصیل کرده بود بینشون وکیل ما شناسایی کردیم پزشک شناسایی کردیم استاد دانشگاه شناسایی کردیم معلم و بازنشسته بود و ببینید مردم ایران چهل سال خسته هستند و چهل سال زیر فشارن فشارهای اجتماعی و سیاسی یک سطحی از نارضایتی رو ایجاد میکنه اما فشار اقتصادی برای فردی که به طور مثال بچه این مثال هایی که میزنم افرادی که خودم باشون صحبت کردم به طور مثال کارگری که دو بچه کوچیک بچه شیرخواره در خونه داره بچه دبستانی در خونه داره و از کار بیکار میشه به دلیل که کارخونهی که داره توش کار میکنه توانایی ادامه شرایط کار رو نداره بعد هزینه هاش رو بیاره پایین و اخراج کارگر اولین راهیه که کارفرماهات سراغش میرن در این شرایط در ایران اخراج شده و دو ماه داره دنبال کار میگرده بچه گرست نست پول شیر خشک که بچهش رو نداره بده و بعد می‌بینه در خیابون اعتراضی شکل میگیره میره در اون اعتراض و گفته خودش با تمام وجود شعار میده مردمی که زیر فشارهای مختلف اقتصادی، سیاسی، اجتماعی و حتی فرهنگی زیر سانسور فرهنگی هستن قطعاً از هر فرصتی به نظر من Uh,
0: And when you talk about that, it being so widespread, this cross-section of people, ordinary people, workers, um, uh, young, old, people who are suffering from their kids are hungry, uh, economic disparity, the protests, you get this sense of them being very visceral and uh, understandably so. As you say, people with, they're out in the streets. Did the protests, suffer from not having some kind of central organization there's been a lot of analysis to say these were disparate groups even though everybody was united in wanting opposing the regime there's no common sort of objective opposition goals is that a problem in a in a protest situation like last year in oban
4: اه ببینید اه خب مسلما من معتقدم این ضعف اپوزیسیون جمهوری اسلامی در خارج از ایران داره که به صورت هماهنگ شده و سازماندهی شده عمل میکنه به دلیل همین هم هست که اپوزیسیم با اینکه از لحاظ کمیت و تعداد زیاده حالا گروه های مختلف سیاسی ولی در ته چهل سال نتونست از لحاظ کیفی و کیفیتی خوب عمل کنه این نظر شخصی منه منتها یک عمل تیگه هم به نظر من شیوه سرکوب جمهوری اسلامیه یعنی جمهوری اسلامی در آبان 98 نشون داد که برای موندن بر سر قدرت اصلا هیچ ملاحظه ای نداره یعنی هیچ چیزی بازدارنده نیست برای نظام جمهوری اسلامی که بخواد در مقابل اعتراضات خیابانی مردم سکوت کنه یا در واقع مماشات بکنه هرچند که ما می بینیم در حوزه فعالیت های مجازی هم به همین شکله یعنی جمهوری اسلامی الان زنداناش پر از بچه های جوانی هست که مثلا کانال تلگرامی داشته فعالیت فیزیکی علیه جمهوری اسلامی نکرده در نتیجه اون قوه سرکوب جمهوری اسلامی رو هم نمیشه نادیده گره
0: let me ask you, Roshanak, about those who carry out these crimes. You know, we often talk about the regime or the IRGC as this monolithic, you know, series of bad guys. And, uh, but I sometimes wonder, who are they? I mean, who, who were the henchmen in this case who committed the atrocities on behalf of the regime? Which segment of the Iranian society did they come from? How are they recruited and how can they shoot their own people without hesitation?
4: ببینید در مورد آمر این داستان کسی که دستور رو صادر می کنه اون چه که به صورت رسمی اعلام شده وزارت کشور دولت آقای روحانی این کار رو کرده هم دستور برخورد شدید رو صادر کرده به دلیل اینکه امنیت درونی ایران زیر مجموعه وزارت کشور یعنی وزارت کشور از قانونی هم این چیز رو داره مسئولیت رو داره ولی به حال وزارت کشور شخص وزیر کشور دستور رو داده منتهیات توی قضيه اینترنت هم به همین شکل ولی گزارشی رویترز منتشر کرده مبنی بر اینکه و این به نقل از منابع آگاه درون ایران بوده که اساسا یک جلسته اتفاق میافته بعد از روز 25م. و آبان که اعتراضات چک میگیره و خب روز خیلی در واقع پر اعتراضی بود در همه شهر صد و خرده‌ی شهر اعتراض داشتیم و در اون جلسه که ارضای مقامات ارشد نظام جمهوری اسلامی بودن و خامنه‌ای در اون جلسه بوده خامنه‌ای ازشون میخواد که اعتراضات رو سری بکنید و نباید ادامه پیدا کنه و حتی تهدید کرده که اگر این اعتراضات ادامه پیدا بکنه تمام مقامات که میتونستن کاری کنن اعتراضات ادامه پیدا نکنه و کمکاری کردن بعدم بعد پاسخگو باشن که خب از همون چند ساعت بعد در همون روز بیس و اینترنت به طور سرسری قطع میشه در ایران و بیشترین کشتار از همون غروب روز بیس شروع میشه که بی ملاحظه شروع میکنن به شلیک مستقیم به مردم در مورد این که چه نهادی اون در واقع شلیکار رو انجام میدهن بعد این توضیح رو بدم که نیروهای امنیتی و نظامی موازی که در ایران وجود داره همه در این داستان نقش دارن یعنی ما وزارت اطلاعات رو داریم نیروهای خودش رو داره که خیلیشون مسلح هستن اسلحه های کمری دارند سازمان اطلاعات استپاک رو داریم بسیج رو داریم پلیس فتا رو داریم که در حوزه اینترنتی فعال هست ولی خب اقدامات امنیتی هم انجام میده در حوزه نظامی ما نیروی انتظامی رو داریم پلیس راهنمایی رانندگی رو داریم که مطلقاً تا الان گزارشی نداشتیم مبنی بر اینکه دخالت کرده باشه در این اعتراضات برای کشتار مردم ولی نیروی انتظامی رو داریم یگان های ضد شورش رو داریم خود نیروهای سپاه رو داریم و گزارش نشون میده همه اینا نقش داشتن یعنی همه اینها در شهرهای مختلف که گزارشاش اومده همه اینا نقش داشتن توی شلیک به مردم حتی نیروهای بسیجی که در واقع توی پایگاه بسیج مثلا مساجد و اینها هستن اونها هم حتی گزارش بوده که به مردم شلیک کردن
0: You've been in touch, I understand, with the, the families of the victims of this uh, of uh, tragedy last last year in Alban. From what I understand, the families are undaunted in their search for justice around what happened. Tell me what you've heard from some of these families, Oshanak. <laughs>
4: در ایران خانواده هایی که فرزندشون یا والدشون در این اعتراضات یا خواهر یا بردرشون کشته شده جمهوری اسلامی به نظر من به سرعت میتونه این خانواده ها و ظرفیت ها و نقاط ضعفشون رو در عرض شاید چند ساعت شناسایی کنه و بفهمه که با هر خانواده‌ای چه داستانی رو پیش ببره ببینید مثلا من مثال بزنم ما خانواده پویا بختیاری رو داریم در اعتراضات آبان 98 که مادر معلم دبستان فعالیت سنفی در حوزه آموزگاران و معلمان برای حقوق معلمان داشته خود خانواده کلا یک نگاه ملی گرایانه داشتن همیشه که خب جمهوری اسلامی به شدت دابیه داره با نگاه‌های ملی گرایانه و حالا بچه‌ی اینها به سر شلیک میشه و از بین میره جمهوری اسلامی میدونه این خانواده رو بعد مهار کرد و از همون لحظه اول در بیمارستان شروع میکنه اینها رو تهدید کردن یعنی اینها دارن خانواده میشنونن که پویا زخمی شده اومده بیمارستان هنوز نمیدونن که پویا فوت کرده و خانواده که هم همزمان نیروی امنیتی در بیمارستان منتظر اینها اصلا و شروع به تهدید میکنن برای خاط سپاریش می میکنن و از همون روزهای اول پدر مادر زیر فشار احزار و بازروی قرار می گیرن که باید سکوت کنید که خب سکوت نکردن منطقه همه خانواده ها اینطوری نیستن بعضی از خانواده ها هستن که در برابر تهدیدها ها و در برابر فشارها ها میشن بعضی خانواده ها هستن میترسن که واقعا این که نیروی امنیتی تهدید میکنه که پسرت رو گرفتم دخترت هم ازت میگیرم واقعا دخترش رو ببرم و بکشن یا زندان کنم و سکوت میکنه بعضی خانواده هم که همراهی حتی ممکنه بکنن مثل کاری که پدر نیکیتا کرد و از مصاحبه کرد و جمهوری اسلامی منتها عمده خانواده ها یک خشم بزرگی در درونشون میمونه و این خشم باز بروز پیدا میکنه یعنی جمهوری اسلامی یه جور چرخه تولید خشم و اعتراض رو خودش داره مدام به حرکت در میاره بین مردم ایران با همین رفتارها.
0: You mentioned the father of Nikita. What can you tell us about her?
4: نیکیتا دختر 14 15 ساله‌ای بود که در تهران به سر شلیک شد و در همون خیابان جانش دست داد. بر اساس اطلاعاتی که به من رسیده پدر و مادر نیکیتا سالها بوده از هم جدا شده بودن و نیکیتا به همراه خواهرش با مادرش زندگی میکردن اصلا با پدر زندگی نمیکردن من تا پدرشون رو میدیدن ارتباط داشتن و زمانی که نیکیتا فوت میکنه اصلا پیش مادرش بوده از خونه مادر خونه که زندگی میکرده خونه مادر میاد بیرون و در خیابون بوده و چون گفته بوده ممکنه برم به پدرم سر بزنم مادر وقتی نیکیتا برنامه‌می‌گرده بعد از چند ساعت نگران نمیشه ولی بعدش پیگیر میشه و به همین دلیل اینها دیر متوجه میشن که نیکیتا در خیابان کشته شده و بعد که متوجه میشن هم که خب سری با فشار نیروهای امنیتی نیکیتا رو به خاک میسارن مادر زیر تهدید قرار میگیره به همین دلیل سکوت کرده تا الان ما هیچ خبری یا گزارشی یا در واقع آمادگی برای مصاحبه از سمت مادر و خانواده مادری نیکیتا نداشتیم تا الان ولی خب پدرش به دلیل دیدگاه های مذهبی که داشته و به دلیل اینکه که برحال زیر فشار یعنی من اینکه یک پدری که به هر دلیلی بچهش رو از دست داده شما بتونی قانعش کنی که ببشین علیه بچه خودت علیه اقدامی که بچت کرده یا به نفع اون کسی که جان بچت رو گرفته صحبت بود به هر حال این زیر یک فشاره حتی اگر اون آدم متوجه نشه که داره باهاش بازی امنیتی میشه یا داره بهش فشار و تهدید امنیتی وارد میشه ولی به هر حال پدرش با مصاحبه کرد با صدا و سیمای جمهوری اسلامی و گفت و خرش مترز نبوده و گفت خبری که در رسانه ها هست دروغ در حالی که نیکیتا در خیابان روز بیست و پنجم کشته شد و این خبر رو ما موسفق داریم حتی یکی از دراویش گنابادی که پیشتر بازداشت شده بود در اون خیابان حضور داشت بعد از اینکه اکس های میکیتا رو من منتشر کردم و اعلام کردم که این همه که از باختگان هست بر یکی از کودکان جانباخت هست چون زیر 18 سال سنداش ایشون به من پریام داد و گفت این دختر رو من نمی دونستم اسمشیه ولی این پیش چشم منجونش رو از دفتاز و من دقیقا کنارش نشسته بودم مه. به اصلاق بقیه مردمی که تو خیابون بودیم حال برخورد خانواده ها می تونه متفاوت باشه اما من معتقدم خشمی که در وجود این خانواده ها شکل می گیره خشمیه که به این سرعت از بین نخواهد رفت. حتما جمهوری اسلامی به نظر من بهای این خشمی که ایجاد کرده رو خواهد پرداخت.
0: These are such devastating stories. A fourteen-year-old girl. Um, let me ask you a final question. Uh, I thank you so much for the time you're giving us today, Roshanak. the The, the campaigns that have been started by um, families of the victims, those who are speaking out, those who do have the the courage and 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 are, are like uh, Puya Bakhtari's uh, uh, mother, you mentioned. Um, I wonder if th- if they're not going to stop their campaigns. And as we have an accumulation of these types of campaigns around the world, there's there's a lot of families for example of the victims of flight 752 here in Canada and around the world who are leading campaigns against the re- the Iranian regime for justice for their their family members who died. These campaigns will somehow become a form of united opposition against this regime does that somehow make sense to you
4: in campaign be nazar man dar moqabele bo jomhoori islamiy afargozar یک موضوع مهم اینه که به نظر من چیزی که من در این سالها دیدم در مورد معترضان و در مورد سرنوشت هایی که پیدا می بحث این هستش که واقعا چقدر موضوع حقوق بشر برای دنیا مهمه چقدر موضوع حقوق بشر در ایران برای دنیا مهمه ببینید مردم ایران با دست خالی در برابر نظامی ایستادن که سالهای سال تمام ثروت یک کشور غنی رو در دست گرفته و قدرت مالی، قدرت نظامی و قدرت امنیتی بسیار بالایی داره. همین امروز ما خبر داشتیم که دولت آقای روحانی اجازه داده که نیروهای وزارت اطلاعات 50 درصد افزایش پیدا کنند. و گزارش هایی که پیشتر اومده بود هرچند که آمار رسمی نداریم سی هزار نیروی وزارت اطلاعات وجود داشته در ایران و شما استبکنین پونزده هزار نیروی امنیتی داره اضافه میشه به این سازمان که یکی از سازمان های امنیتیه مردم ایران در برابر این رژیم استادن و اینترنت روشون قطع میشه به گلولو رگبار کشیده میشن ولی باز استادن بحث که آیا واقعا حقوق بشر در ایران آیا واقعا اون بچه هایی که در ایران کشته میشن اون هزاران نفری که زندانی اون بچه هایی که هفش نفری که الان به دلیل حضور در اعتراضات به اعدام محکوم شدن و هر لحظه ممکنه بالای دار برن چقدر برای دنیا مهمه و چقدر دنیا چه دولت ها چه سازمان های حقوق بشری حاضرند؟ کنار مردم ایران و از اونها حمایت تا بتونن این اعتراضات رو به نتیجه
0: I thank you so much for your time today thank you for your um, eloquence and your information appreciate it. I, I that's Roshanak Astaraki, a freelance journalist working with Kahan London, where she focuses on Iran's economy and current affairs. Roshanak Astaraki joined us from Cyprus today. This is rook on soundcloud spotify itunes instagram youtube and telegram well to discuss what the legacy of bloody november 2019 in iran is one year later we turn to Stuart williams Stuart is a Paris based international correspondent for Agence France Presse. He was born in Wimbledon, UK, and holds a degree in modern and medieval languages from Oxford. He has just finished a stint as AFP's deputy bureau chief in Turkey. His previous posts have included Tehran, Moscow, Paris, and Frankfurt. He has written and reported extensively about Iran and the Auburn protests. And Stuart Williams joins me from Paris right now. Hello, sir.
5: Hi nice to hear you how are you
0: Very nice to have you on the program Stuart what what do you believe the legacy of the aban protests and bloodshed is one year later
5: I mean it's obviously it's still early to assess maybe the legacy and as we're not standing in Iran itself one must always you know one it's hard to make the judgment with the a uh, uh, distance but I think If one looks at the modern history of Iran after the Islamic uh, Revolution, you have what happened in 2009 after the disputed election, and now you have the Aban protest. These are moments which leave a a historical mark on uh, contemporary Iran. They're moments which uh, the authorities don't move on from with everything forgotten and left Behind it leaves a scar on society and it, it creates a shadow over everything that comes next. And now, obviously, Iran at the moment is in a very difficult situation because of the economic situation, because of the maximum pressure. Different people analyze the effects of that in different ways, but the Aban protests obviously showed the capacity for anger in Iran and also the capacity of the Iranian system the Iranian regime to hit uh, back at that in a very severe manner so it's certainly a landmark moment in uh, in 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 modern Iranian history and how important it is i think uh, only time will tell until in the future
0: let me pick up on the last thing you said there about the regime hitting, hitting back in the way it did mm. the the aban massacre is probably now uh, the most deadly incident in Iran's contemporary history. Why did the mm-hmm. regime resort to such extreme violence?
5: Well, I think I think the situation is extremely delicate in in Iran at the moment. And remember the context. This the Aban. Uh, the uh, Aban protests were uh, followed also by the shooting down of the Iranian airliner, which also uh, prompted protests. And there was a crackdown also on, on those protests. So it's quite a febrile situation at the moment because of the uh, maximum pressure, because of the economic uh, problems, but also because obviously Iran, as we know, is a very technologically literate country. People are wired up to the internet and to social media. They're on social media channels despite the restrictions. They know how to subvert them as well. And so it's very well connected to things. People are aware of what's going on. And so there is a capacity for protest in Iran. It's a very young country. The, uh, the youth population is extremely strong. People have ambitions in, in Iran. They want a, a better future. Uh, And so the potential is there. And because the economic situation is getting harder and harder, the potential for protest is is so much there. And that means the the Islamic regime is watching very closely what happens on the streets and obviously perceives these street actions as a threat to its uh, authority. And that is why, I think, is the evident answer why... uh, the response is quite so ruthless um, as it is, and that response still uh, continues in what we hear in terms of not uh, looking into any judicial accountability for what happened, and also in terms of even pressuring from what we hear from, from activists on the ground in Iran and, and outside pressuring families who lost loved ones in the protests not to speak out and not to seek uh, retribution for what happened.
0: Uh, Stuart, based on your reporting and what you learned um, uh, while covering this over the last year, uh, uh, how effective was that internet shutdown? And not only in retarding or preventing the, 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 mm. the information coming out of Iran for people like us to know what's going on, and but, but for the yeah. coordination of the protests amongst those who were in the streets inside Iran.
5: I think, I mean, it's hard to say from here on the second point. I think the protests happened uh on quite a large scale and were and were halted not so much by the internet shutdown but by the uh by the uh, by the forceful response from the authorities i think at the time having watched this from outside at the time i think few people were aware of the scale of what was happening obviously people were aware there were protests in iran this is unusual it was to- it was a news story in the us in canada in europe etc but it wasn't something that is. It wasn't something that was really maybe that as intense as it would have been if people had known at the time the extent of what was going on, how large the protests were, and then how severe the a crackdown was. I, because of the internet shutdown, because of the fact that videos were not uh, filtering out of of the country in the way that they would have done normally in the year twenty nineteen, with all the you know the technolo- technological. Uh, connection we have that really prevented it becoming major um, potentially a major major international issue at the time and maybe softened the pressure that there would have been on the regime in terms of international response international criticism from governments from ngos etc at the time because the evidence which people need evidence to make points was relatively scarce and many people had to make assumptions but only now Many months later is the uh, material uh, emerging in some uh, quantity, and the activists and the experts uh, can now sift through it and make their conclusions based on, on evidence and, and numbers and, and not make uh, assumptions about what happened.
0: What does what America... Um how, what role does America play in all this? It's no secret that under the Trump administration, the U.S. scuttled the nuclear deal with Iran, the the JCPOA, and then subsequently imposed heavier sanctions. Uh, what, what is your take on the role of the U.S. and the U.S. sanctions in fostering what happened last year?
5: Well, I think they've tried. The Trump administration tried to use sanctions as a very, very blunt and, and quite ruthless instrument obviously no one doubts that the maximum pressure and the sanctions have had an effect on the ground in in iran you just need to look at the hardships of ordinary uh, people uh it's another matter and i think experts are quite divided on this whether that will uh, translate uh neatly as obviously the trump administration hoped into people being angry against the uh, regime I and mean, iran has as we know, has a has a long history of outside interference in its own own affairs, going back to um, uh, Mossadegh, etc., and uh, before. And it's generally, and I felt this when I lived there, that whatever the political persuasion of of Iranians inside uh, Iran, they don't take very kindly to being dictated what to do from from outside and so it's not a a, a clean assumption to make that just because america causes this economic hardship inside iran the iranians themselves will take that hardship out on the regime Uh, it's quite hard to say but obviously i think the calculus inside the white house administration the current one was the maximum pressure and the sanctions would increase the resentment of ordinary people against the, against the regime and push, and in so doing push for a change of that uh, regime but maybe it's not so simple it's very, it's very, hard, to, it's very hard to say uh, from here uh, and what the new administration what policy they all have on Iran is obviously another issue I, I doubt they would have such a blunt, a blunt policy but it may not be a completely 360 uh, 180 degree turn on that
0: I know it's almost impossible to answer sort of crystal ball kind of questions, especially when it comes to Iran and the number of times this regime has been counted out and uh, has somehow survived uh, um, is notable. But, you know, these protests have been crushed. Uh, for now, that Mm -hmm. there's no uprising for now, uh, but the arrests and the feeling of repression is obviously still very much alive. In fact, the underlying reasons for this uprising as we've been discussing over the course of these interviews have uh, not only not been resolved, they've deepened. I mean, the economy's gotten worse. The situation is dire. Mm -hmm. There's a pandemic, of course, on top of that now. And we can expect, surely, the next time there's the equivalent of a gas price increase or a political decision that's uh, deeply unpopular with the public, it's going to spark another round of uprising, and the next wave would likely be more violent. The crackdown more brutal. Where is all of this going?
5: Well, again, it's obviously it's it, it's hard to make a firm uh, conclusion. As, as as you say, uh, it's very much uh, dictated by outside events and unpredictable events. I think if you look at the uh, the shooting down of the. Ukrainian airliner earlier this year. This is an event which is completely not predicted by anyone, obviously. It it happened, and that produced a protest in a a certain time, but that's an example of the kind of event which can emerge from absolutely nowhere and suddenly transform the situation. I'm not going to stand here, and and I can't make any predictions over over the future of the of the Iranian system and the Iranian uh, Iranian regime all I can say is that it's clear that the economic situation is extremely tough inside uh, Iran but it's true also that the the system has um, now survived for decades you know, through difficult times and it's um, having lived there myself I know it's a system which has quite deep roots inside Iranian society as well. So it's very, it's very hard to say, but obviously there are many factors which are changing inside Iran in terms of the demographics, the, the young population, and the increasing use of social media by people, which is, a, is something which uh, you can't compare with from 10 years ago. That certainly changes things, uh, things a lot. And as you say, it doesn't seem that the economic situation will get radically better in the short term. And since the Aban since the protests, the new factor is obviously the uh, covid pandemic although while at the start it looked like iran was one of the countries you know very much worst hit anywhere in the world it has become more clear that right. it's <laughs> much more of a global thing not i yeah. not just iran right. uh
0: I just wonder, as a final question, I mean, even, uh, you know, even in the absence of what happens next, I mean, the million dollar question of Mm -hmm. who the opposition even is, since there's no unified Mm -hmm. opposition outside of Iran, let alone inside. But I just wonder if this is not building up to a, a crescendo. I mean, there there is, you know, uh, as um, both Nazanin and Roshanak, who were on before, you mentioned that, you know, mm-hmm. that this protest, these protests were characterized by people, for example, on the streets of Iran saying, down with the dictator, down with Khamenei, which, as you know, you wouldn't have heard uh, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And these campaigns by, say, the families of the victims of, uh, whether it's Puyah, or others of, of yeah. the Aubon protests are, are not stopping, and the campaigns of the families of the Flight 752 and, the, and human rights organizations around people like Navi Dafkari, it just seems like there, yeah. is, there is a growing global movement to shift something, and that that seems inevitable. I know we've said that for a while, but what would your final word be on that?
5: I think my final word would be, and I think it's one of the key things about trying to understand Iran, is it's, it's a, obviously an authoritarian uh, system, but it's not a completely closed society. As you evoked in the question, things are discussed, things are debated uh, within restrictions in uh, society. So one answer might be to watch how much, how much space are the authorities prepared to give people. Uh, as well people are frustrated uh, there is anger how much room will be given to them to give uh, give vent to that to uh, ask questions of the authorities and to, and to bring them to account and that might have an effect in the future over on on what happens if, if in fact if in fact uh, people are allowed to give expression to what they want to say and get results from that within the system but that's is also another thing that people point out at the moment is the within the system you have the uh, the conservatives dominating what we used to be called barely much less these days the reformist movement is much weakened the, there's no obvious in quotes reformist bigger head. and so within Iran if you are someone who wants change uh, and you want to bring that out through the ballot box. Um, it, when the elections are now are now looming as well, it's going to be harder to do that too because of the weakness of the reformists, and you'll just be left with a choice of uh, of conservatives. So people might be left asking where they want to uh, where they want to express themselves, whether the election actually offers them a chance to do that, and that can lead to, lead to tensions too. So it's definitely an absolutely critical time right now. Uh, critical weeks, even because obviously the handover between the two administrations. Who knows? There's obviously a lot of concern about what the Trump administration might do in its last weeks in, in office. That's right. another another question, and then many questions about what policy the incoming administration will have towards um, uh, Tehran. How much patience it's uh, prepared to show? Will it be? willing to quickly come back into the nuclear deal and help Iran thus economically or will it want to keep on a, a much uh, tougher line to, to uh, also to uh, keep good relations with the right in, in the US too? So, so many questions and maybe we'll know a bit more in a, in a few weeks time when the, in a few months time when the handover between the, between the two administrations has uh, taken place. But it's certainly a, an absolutely critical moment in Iran's history. One One could have said that at many moments over the last years. But I think that the upcoming months, this is going to be particularly true.
0: Stuart Williams, it's a great pleasure. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for this.
5: Me too, Thanks very much.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Stuart Williams, the international correspondent for Agence France-Presse. Stuart Williams joined us from Paris, France today. All right, back here with Captain Reza, Groovishaya, and the fabulous Keon. Um, I'm grateful to Nazanin Ansari, Stuart Williams and Roshana Kastaraki for um, helping us out on the uh, giving us context for bloody November one year removed. You know every time I do the interviews like that I want to ask the question so what can people in the diaspora do about it? And, and, I, and I, I catch myself not wanting to ask the question because it's kind of a futile, it's not that it's a futile question, but there's just only so many ways people can answer that question. It's like, well, self-determination for Iranians, we have to support as much as we can, we have to, you know, but there's just, uh, there's only so much we can do. We just we sit here and right. watch what goes down there and know that we have family and friends and loved ones there and, and worry about them and and, uh, and hope that things will change, right? Yeah.
1: It's just endless. We, uh, I think, the most important thing is we can't give up. We have to keep, you know, holding each other solid and supporting each other despite all the atrocities that's going on over there. And you know, what more can we do outside of Iran?
0: Shia, uh, what what were you thinking of as you listened back to yeah. remembering uh, Albon? Yes. Of uh, actually,
2: I, I thought with myself, the thing that pissed me off ten years ago. I mean. The now eleven years ago. The Green Movement? The Green Movement. But at in in November we released a song w- related to that all the killing happened and at that moment.
0: Dang Show did?
2: Yes. But mm-hmm. the thing is really make me upset is that ten years after that song still works mm-hmm. and it's more relevant. Yeah, oh yeah more yeah, relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and not not in even in ten years When you listen to a science for 40 years ago, still it works now, you know, and
0: it it shows that uh, it, an ongoing cycle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The most devastating part. I mean, that's that's where we ask the question: What is, are there lessons to be learned? Are there what can we? And and um, again, I mean, I think our three guests did their best job of trying to impart uh, yeah. ideas around what the lessons can be. But there's only so much that can can be said when it when it is a, it's a repeated cycle. Yes. And there's the the one prediction is it's going to happen again. It's going to get worse. It's going to be more violent. It's going to be more a, a greater crackdown. It's going to be until something has to burst, right? Yes. Um, I thought the point that um, I think Nazanin was making about uh, uh, the protesters getting younger and younger all the time was quite significant, right? I mean, I thought that they were young in the Green Movement, so I guess. Yes. Um, Reza, what were, you, what were your thoughts we as you?
1: Shaya, sort of in his own words, uh, said the two only questions that were circling in my head, when would be the next uprising and how much worse it's going to be the crackdown the violent, um, essentially, uh, response from the regime to the people, and and you're right. It, it I mean, Nazanin said it uh, quite nicely that the the protesters are getting uh, keep getting younger and younger because they find no uh, future and they they f- they're hopeless that there is no future for them in Iran. What I found most heartbreaking during that time, I don't know if you remember, but um, uh, uh, last November, uh, th- I was. I was I kept reopening every media outlet CNN BBC nobody was covering this there and if they were very limited It was like, you know, maybe like the third e- page over yeah, that yeah. broke my heart Actually,
0: let me tell you something about that that I found really interesting just doing this kind of focus on this today they di- the difference between folks that I know who are um, Have either still in Iran or they've just come from Iran and they're more focused on sort of Persian Twitter and like what's going on in the in? Persian media, Farsi media, we're like, oh, bon, yeah, everybody's talked about that. We're, you know, we all, we know, we already know all the details. Whereas for those of us who are have been in the diaspora longer or are not consuming as much Persian media, or you know, I watch CNN or, or read the New York Times or whatever. There really hasn't been that much information for us, right? Like a lot of this stuff is is a learning curve right. because it, we, it it isn't covered in the global it media, was not. you yeah. know. And and I do believe it's important for us to do stuff like this in English because it's got to become accessible to those who are not Farsi speaking. To you know, first of all, non-Iranians, but yeah. even Iranians who are not constantly still watching, you know, uh, 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 Persian media because they came here two years ago or you know are are so sort of steeped in that mm-hmm. and there's so many in the diaspora and of course non-Iranians who need access to this information exactly. through English channels as well. Yeah. If I not agree. any other language that isn't Farsi. Mm-hmm. Um all right this is Rook you are listening to us on SoundCloud, Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes and Telegram. The Rook team is here and um you know it's Monday so that can only mean one thing. Each week She enriches our lives by teaching us language we didn't know, at least some of us. And she completes us in our mission to be perfect English and Persian blended specimens. She's the person behind the popular English Sifarsi Instagram page. But as importantly, she is the Persian priestess of Proverbs, the Australian sage of sayings, the wondrous woman of words. She is Mona from Melbourne, our resident Rook wordsmith. And she joins us right now from Melbourne.
6: Hello, salon. How are you all? <laughs> Durut.
0: <laughs>
6: uh. yes, correct. How is life down under? <laughs> um, honestly, it's been really good. Spring's here and um, we're... I mean, I, I hear you guys are under a bit of a situation with COVID at the moment, so I, I very much feel for you guys because we're we're doing really well. We're 30 days COVID-free in Melbourne, so wow. um, yeah, I, I can't complain about that. And I, I feel for you guys because this is you're undergoing a second wave. Is is that correct?
0: Well, well, you're more than more than <laughs> <laughs> more than undergoing. It feels it's like pretty, the yeah. sixth wave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess Australia, <laughs> you know, Melbourne is the place to be. The sun's coming out. Spring is here. Yeah. No COVID. Good for you. What are Thank you bestowing you. upon? Our imaginations today? A word, a saying, a proverb, an idiom? What is it?
6: Today is an idiom what and an idiom? it's related, yes, it's related to the humble grape. The what? The humble grape or anger oh, as you like to call it. The humble mean.
0: grape, okay. <laughs>
6: So, um, I have a bit of a backstory about it and then we can go into the nitty-gritty of um, today's idiom. All right. Um, Do we need a a recap on what an idiom is or do you feel our our listeners... I think you
0: can always provide a recap on what an idiom (laughs) is, yes.
6: So, an idiom is a group of words that have meaning that's not actually explicitly stated in the sentence. So, it has a non-literal meaning. Okay. So,
0: I believe last this? last week was an idiom.
6: Correct. Right. I've, I found that the idioms are quite interesting in um, Persian cultural context, and I find that they have an interesting backstory to a lot of them. So I thought I'd share this one with you all today. Okay. All right. So... Um, uh, there's a famous poet. So it said that one day, Malik, I'm going to butcher this name. My mum my made me practice it like three times, but I still, I still think I'm going to butcher it. So <laughs> please wish me luck. Um, so his name is Malik R.A. I'm not sure if you're familiar uh, we, let with um, me just
0: this go famous poet. <laughs> Shia currently is wearing a referee outfit. <laughs> and he yes, he acts as the referee when it comes yes, to words uh, on this. So Shaya, can you please help yes. us with the pronunciation of that? Wow. Yes. To make yeah.
1: it simple for
2: you, Malik is, it means the uh, sahib, I mean owner. Shoarrah is the plural way of Shair poets and Bahor is the spring. Maleko Sha ye Bahor bahar uh-huh. yes
6: correct thank I'm you um sure. I, uh-huh. I told my mom i practiced it but <laughs> i definitely didn't say it
0: like that. can we can we just have your mom doing this instead of you <laughs> she in melbourne yes. she can still she be is, is her she name mona <laughs> Could she also be one from melbourne we can switch you
6: Okay. her name is Nuran, uh, um and she's she's currently taking care of my children so uh, i can lovely, talk to you lovely lovely oh.
0: okay. thank you um, all right go ahead
6: yes very much so um whatever uh shaya said um the poet bahar (laughs) he was he was sitting in a meeting and um the audience had chosen four words to test his poetic prowess um so that he can bring them into a um a quatrain so a quatrain is a, a um Poetry that is consisted of four lines that rhyme. So what they do is they give them four random words And these these unproficient um, poets are able to weave these words into rhythmic sounds um, That are made up of four sentences. And so in order to do that and to prove his um, skills um, uh, the, the so What, what
0: era was this poet? Malik?
6: Um, I don't know. I think 60 AD from memory. I I mean, I read up about it. Oh, many, many, many centuries ago. Yes, correct. Um, A long time ago. um, And so they wanted to test his um, prowess. And so they gave him these four words. So they gave him the words khurus, angur, uh, derafsh, which is flag, and sang, which is stone, and so they made him come up with this um, po- a poem on the spot.
0: Khurus, uh, angur, angur, sang, and, and derafsh, a tree.
6: Derafsh, okay. uh, which is a flag. Oh, 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 oh
0: derafsh. Flag. Oh, derafsh. Okay. Yes.
6: So he made up this amazing poem, and um, the audience was stunned. But an inexperienced young man who was present in this gathering said that this was. Um, like all rigged and not actually um, a, an impromptu creation. And he said, "If you really are um, such a wizard of words, um, I would like to give you four more words so that you can come up with this quatrain again with these new words." So the guy, the, the, the
0: guy in the audience said it was rigged. Yeah,
6: yeah he totally. He what, said was it was. His clu- name, was his
0: name Donald J. Trump?
6: <laughs> <laughs> um, that wasn't um, specified no, was in the too, story. No, it was too long it ago. Was an anonymous yeah, yeah. young man.
0: Okay, yes. all right.
6: <laughs> Um, and the four words he came up with was mirror, so aine,
0: yeah.
6: arre, which is saw, shu, um, which is cash, and gure, which is like a sour or unripe grape. Okay. And he asked the poet to weave these words into a quatrain. And obviously trying to make a mockery of um, this this Proficient and very well versed, wise young uh, poet, Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously he could do this with the greatest of ease. And um, I don't know whether you want me to share this uh, poem. I I hope I can do it justice, (laughs) Shia. Please. (laughs) Well, well, (laughs) hang on a
0: second. Uh, Now, just on the basis of what Mona has told us so far, Shia and Reza, do you know where this is going? What the idiom is going to be? No. No. Okay, so so far you uh, stumped the experts, and oh, wow. uh, Kian and I are still trying to figure out what angur means. So don't, uh, <laughs> so we don't really stand a chance. Uh, go, go ahead, and uh, so so uh, yeah. So we've got these these um, four words that the poet was gonna be using, and then the four words that are suggested by the uh, non-believer and the audience, and then so uh, he forms a poem using all eight words.
6: Yes, and he does it so eloquently, and he weaves it so cleverly that. Um, uh, if you would like, I can share the poem and then uh, share the idiom that uh, goes along with it.
0: Okay, share the poem first, yeah.
6: Okay, so, um, Chon Aine Nur گشتی Gashti Asant, Chon Arebe Chalog Tiz Gashti Asant, Dar Kafshe Adibone Jahon Kardi Poyi, Gure Nashode Maviz Gashti Asant. So essentially he weaved all of these four words in such an eloquent manner, but really he was schooling this young man who um, was trying to undermine his genius. So basically saying that he's too big for his boots. So can you guess the idiom that is evolving from this?
0: uh,
6: Um, um, Have you you come across it before?
0: uh, The, the, it doesn't involve shotor this week. I know that. <laughs> that's that's uh, all I, I'm good for.
1: <laughs> it doesn't involve
0: more or I'm shotor. Out. Yeah, yeah. Or something it's to do with kafsh. I mean, it, you're too big for or or, or angur. What, or, angur? Ang- uh, ang- so it's related yeah. to a
6: gure. So the gure. unripe grape. So can you think of any idioms that are related to a gure?
0: Gure. No, I wouldn't know the Farsi idiom. And there's, I can't think of a English idiom that involves think an unripe grape. Yeah. No, it's unripe grape. Yeah. Okay. So uh, now, now Shaya and uh, Reza yes. are looking devilishly uh, sat- self-satisfied, like they know what the answer <laughs> T-nour, is. Do you know? Do you know? Who wants to Shaya? You want to tell us?
2: <laughs> yeah. Actually, the last phrases that you you just recited, you said the idiom that. That's
6: right. Can
0: you say that again, please? Now we have to figure out what. So, uh, if the grape has not become unripe? Uh,
2: No. No. Okay. (laughs) So, it's not. It means. You you you're not even on uh, what's right what's grape uh, unripe un yeah. you, you're not even unripe grape uh-huh. but you want to be raisin oh. oh
5: that's good
0: that's good
2: you haven't paid your
5: dues
0: yet. even though you're not yeah. even a ripe grape yes. you want to be kesh, what is it ma-viz. Ma-viz. <laughs> sorry no uh, mavis mavis is another word it's for ma-viz. raisin. Raisin, it's can like
6: a current, like a Zante current. Um, so it's a bit smaller than a raisin, but yeah, a very similar family. Okay,
0: so Mona, do you yeah. give us the idiom again?
6: So, uh
0: huh. So, if Keon's boasting about her Farsi, I can say, <laughs> <laughs> shoulde, ma'viz shoulde. Yes, in, exactly, as
1: in, as in sit down, little girl, you have much to learn. <laughs>
0: no yeah. i like it i like it it's so it's kind of like um uh yeah I, I, it's, it's it's a nice imagery yeah. uh the, the it hasn't even become a ripe grape and wants to be a raisin yeah. or a, a,
6: exactly uh,
0: it's quite
1: poetic but you know what's funny well, I, I hadn't heard <laughs> that on. idiom before but i got it as soon as i heard it i understood what it meant but i never heard that before so it's first. how time.
0: common is that mona
6: well um I well I couldn't tell you because I've never lived in Iran so yeah. um I, you, I've just
0: Can you ask your mother? <laughs>
6: <laughs> she's she's heard it before when okay. I said it she was like oh yeah I remember this one. What about um, you Shai? Do you
0: know that one? Do you do you know that one? The, the, ha- hang hang on a second let's uh, call Ponta the artist cuz she knows these Panta! things. I, I,
1: have
2: a, I have a correction but Malekoshari is for 100 years ago actually. Oh
0: he's only 100 oh, years apologies. ago. Oh yeah, apologies. Yeah, 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 okay.
1: Yeah. okay.
6: Well I, I guess it was just something I had read up on a long while ago. So thank okay, you for
0: Okay. So um so Ponta if you uh we're, we're can you hear us? Yes. Okay. So Mona from Melbourne is on the line right now and she's taught us a new idiom and uh I want to know if you know it. Uh how how would we test whether she knows it or not? Shia, see if you can explain see if you can get Ponta to guess it.
2: Okay. Masalam Jian he's uh, he's teaching me some stuff about uh, making a program, and one day I come to his office and I said, "No, you say it wrong. We have to do it on this way." And Xian uh, would say to me, "Oh, you blah 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 blah."
0: What would I say? Uh, you know, "Oh, you're trying to be something you're not." What would be the Persian idiom for that?
6: Uh, you try to be something.
2: It's related to uh, anguro. And you can.
0: It's related using the something to do with angur, kind of.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
6: oh, hey. Wow, amazing. Go Panta. Panta
0: the up. artist. Although it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Gure na shudi>. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's
6: accept- uh, acceptable, I think.
0: Yeah, very good. Yeah, very good. definitely. So Ponta, <laughs> how, how common is that? Do you have people use that a lot?
6: Um, honestly, I, I use uh, those kind of uh, things a lot. Uh, but yeah, yeah.
0: L- most people, you think, would know it.
6: Yes, most uh, old generation people. Than now, I think. Okay. Than the new ones. The super
0: old people like you.
6: No. <laughs> oh no no
0: no no. P- our youngest uh, team member, so um, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, Ponta the artist. Uh, Mona from Melbourne, you've done it again. You've created oh. uh, magic with with words. Uh, let me see if Keon can repeat it back because Keon's got to use it on her uh, her doctor and oh uh, family. God. And You're and, putting
1: uh, pressure on come me. Come on, Keon. <laughs> Mavis Bish.
0: Navy, That works. works. That, uh, works yeah, right? yeah, that works, right? It yeah. works in
1: my head, so <laughs> it carries the meaning still,
6: definitely.
0: <laughs> uh, Mona Kiani, Mona from Melbourne. Thank you so much for this. Uh, and see you next Monday.
6: Thanks, Jan. Thanks, team. Lovely to speak to you all. Take care.
0: Bye Mona. Bye, Mona. Bye, Mona. That's Mona from Melbourne. You can find her page at English on Instagram. Thank you, the Fabulous Keon. Thank See you ja. Thursday. Thank you, Captain Reza. Uh, Groovy Shaya. Thank you. And
2: good That's full
0: time for Rook for today. If you want to find out anything about our show or look at our uh, previous episodes or link to any of our platforms, rookmedia.com. Rookmedia.com, where you can also become a patron of our program and support us. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together each week. Producer Susan, Ponza the Artist, Thoughtful Megin, the fabulous on Sabi Roham, Arayamertad, English Muhammad, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shia. Thanks to all of you out there supporting us. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And of course, Mizunbashi.